This Memorial Day, get more for your money at Meyer. Grilled tasty burgers with 80% lean ground beef at $1.99 per pound. And Kingsford Twin Pack Original Charcoal for $17.99. Coca-Cola products are buy five, save $5, plus deposit where applicable. And shop the same low in-store prices using home delivery or pickup. Exclusions apply. Plus, Meyer credit card holders get 10 cents off per gallon at Meyer gas stations. Meyer credit card offers subject to credit approval. Terms and conditions apply. Details at Meyer.com slash credit card. See the deals in the Meyer app. Texting privacy policy in terms of conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun, and everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just $1. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232. And welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you would like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. To find out about the programming we have available for you 24-7, 365 on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit our website at xzbn.net. And of course, we're also on the Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, iHeartRadio, Xena Media, uh, iTunes, uh, let me see, and of course, Simul TV and Simul Radio. And for the broadcast schedule of the X-Zone TV channel on Simul TV, visit simultv.com and the Exxon TV channel is channel 21. My guest this hour, Exxon Nation, is Robert Zimmerman. He is an award-winning space historian, writing articles and books on issues of science, history, technology, and culture. His newest book, The Universe in a Mirror, The Saga of the Hubble Space Telescope and the Visionaries Who Built It, and it's published by Princeton University Press, tells the sometimes heartbreaking story of the men and women who conceived, designed, built, screwed up, fixed, and then used the Hubble telescope. His previous book, Leaving Earth, Space Stations, Rivals, Superpowers, and the Quest for Interplanetary Travel, was awarded the Eugene A.M.M. Award by the American Astronomical Society for the Best Popular Space History in 2003. In 2000, he was the co-winner of the David N. Sacrum Award, given by the High Energy Astrophysics Division of the American Astronomical Society for Science Journalism. His website, BehindTheBlack.com, and Bob Zimmerman, welcome to the X-Zone. I'm very glad to be here, Rob. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure, sir. Um, how did you get started as being a space historian? <laughs> well, the philosophy of my, my life has always been one's work should be one's hobby. Love it. And I, that, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be rich, but it means you'll be <laughs> at least happy in what you're doing. You and mean so, that? so uh, for many years, mm -hmm. I was actually, my first uh, career out of college was really to get into the film business. I was trying to learn how to make movies and right. write stories that would appeal to me. 
And um, after about 20 years of that, of making really many very worthless, bad films where uh, it, it, it's pitiful how bad that industry <laughs> is in terms of quality and art. It just is just terrible. I just got sick of it. And I said, you know, I'm going to start doing things that interest me, mm-hmm. writing things that interest me. And I tend to be a very optimistic person. And one of the things that's always intrigued me in all aspects uh, is exploration, pushing the unknown. Now, that just doesn't mean climbing the top of a mountain or, let's say, going to the moon. Mm-hmm. It can also be science, just answering questions that are pending that we don't know the answers to and trying to dig in um, to that unknown. In fact, my website, Behind the Black, is inspired by the the pictures of the astronauts on the moon with that really pitch black sky. And the universe is is that. It's black until we dig into the blackness to see what's behind it. And that interested me. So I said, you know, let me write about something positive. And so I started to do uh, articles Mm -hmm. about uh, science for a variety of magazines and then decided it's time to move on to books as well and start to write about space exploration and the history. Because unlike the movie business, this was showing humans at their noblest trying to do spectacular things with our greatest skills, our ability to adapt and think and create new things. I remember seeing the very first photographs that were coming back from the Hubble, and I was just amazed at how alive the universe really is. Yes. Um, one, of the th- one of the allures of Hubble mm-hmm. that I discovered when I wrote Universe in the Mirror is that um, no matter who opposed it, and a lot of people opposed it, it was, it's a telescope that cannot die. In the 50s, the astronomers opposed it. They were one out. In the 60s, um, uh, Congress opposed it. They, they broke down. In the 70s, uh, others opposed it. In the 80s, it was opposed by different people. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, every step of the way, it's been opposed. But every time, those, those opposition fell because the, the, the possibility of seeing something we'd never seen before, before Hubble, we, didn't wear, we were like human beings that were half blind and couldn't wear glasses, and Hubble basically put glasses on for us. So it, those first few pictures of Hubble, the sharp pictures demonstrated yeah. it, in which it showed sometimes... You know, we've seen fuzzy images of, like, planetary nebula, but not really knew what they were. And then it took a picture of the star Eta Carina, and it was um, it was patently clear that we were looking at a star that was exploding. And imagine that. We're looking, and now we know that. Before then, we weren't clear. It was a fuzzy thing. Now it's a star exploding. That's a really exciting thing. And that's 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 the whole aspect of space exploration that appeals to me, that this is really the cutting edge of human endeavor right now. We are getting in, and at this time and day, our time, when we're alive, the human race is getting its first glimpse of what the universe is really like. And it's only a glimpse, but it's giving us a sense of the wonders that lie out there that we have not yet seen. I look at the Hubble as the instrument that is giving us a glimpse at the man behind the curtain. The wonder that is out there. The man behind the curtain. Explain what you mean by that. Well, in The Wizard of Oz, you have the wizard behind the curtain who's performing all these wonderful things that people weren't sure about. You know, they had little glimpses. They had little ideas. But when the man was exposed by Toto, the dog pulling the uh, the curtain away, you know, the wonderment was, was there. And when I saw the pictures of the Hubble, uh, from the Hubble, you know, we got a bigger glimpse into what the reality of the universe really is. It's just not this pitch black uh, voidness that we thought it was. 
it's living. It's full. The analogy I like to use is this: that the impression that humans had of the night sky is mm-hmm. quiet, peaceful, the starlight, gentle and quiet. Yeah. And what Hubble and all the um, space telescopes and modern astronomy has actually taught us is that the universe is a very active and violent place, and and also a place of infinite variety. One of the things that has struck me endlessly about the planetary exploration that's been going on. Uh, since the 50s is that every single object that we have gone to in the solar system, that's every single one from planets, comets, uh, moons, asteroids, every single one has has been completely unique. They, every single one. And uh, the best example is when New Horizons flew past Pluto and its moon Charon. Mm-hmm. Those two moon, those two objects, they're almost a double planet, are completely different from each other. And yet they're in orbit around each other. They're completely different. Different look, different color, different uh, makeup, uh, different geology. And yet they're in orbit around each other. And that applies to every single object we've seen. You can go down the list, the moons of Saturn. Everyone is unique. And that just tells us something about the uh, the majesty of the universe, and it, it's uh, it's endlessly amazing yeah. as I, I I track um, the pictures coming down from Mars and from the other planetary probes. They're constantly astonishing, constantly astonishing. Not just Hubble; it's all the images, you know, from the rovers, from the, uh, the Juno orbiting Jupiter, from Cassini when it was around Saturn, and from Lost Horizons in January. Lost Horizons, January first, is going to fly by a Kuiper Belt object be the first time we get a close look at an object that is basically formed at the very outer reaches of the solar system. And we have no idea what this is going to look like. It was formed in a low-gravity environment without a lot of energy. It, we have no idea what this is going to look like. I can make one prediction. It's not going to look like anything else we've seen before, and that's really exciting. You know, you were giving the examples about the two moons circling the planet, and each moon was different. And for those of us who, who you know, who would like to see a very simple example. Just look out at the night sky and look at our moon, how different it is from our planet. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. the Earth is a planet of life. Yes. And there is no other planet we've seen so far that has that. You can you go anywhere on the Earth. It doesn't matter how much of a desert or a remote place. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that you see you, you don't see life. It's, it perve- it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it, and you don't want to, really. And no other planet looks that way. And the, mo- and the moon, in many ways, is the absolute opposite of the Earth. And, in fact, it's different from most of the objects we've looked at in how not only lifeless it is, but generally inactive it is. I mean, there's activity on Mars. There's activity on many, many moons. We found that Pluto is an active place. You actually have nitrogen uh, glaciers that are moving and changing. You've got floating mountains, mountains of uh, ice, and that's basically that bedrock, but they float on the nitrogen. Think how strange that is. But it's active, while the moon, moon is very inactive. Nothing really happens there, really very little over eons. And that's totally opposite what the Earth is. Except when mankind landed on the moon. That's when yes, there was Yes, except moving. when humans go there. Uh, and in fact, I like to talk about our exploration is the equivalent of tracing a warm line in a dead place. All right, and let's talk about that when we come back from this break. ExoNation, uh, Bob Zimmerman is our special guest. His website is BehindTheBlack.com. And we'll be back on the other side of this commercial break talking more about space here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. 
Don't forget, you can get your uh, complimentary copy of the X Chronicles newspaper simply by going to xchroniclesnewspaper.com. I'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. Bob Zimmerman is our special guest this hour. His website is BehindTheBlack.com. Bob, oh, we, I briefly mentioned uh, the Apollo missions to the moon, and uh, they, were, they were something to behold. I remember as a young kid watching the, the images coming from the United States. We lived in Montreal, and we were able to watch it on WPTZ out of, uh, out of Plattsburgh, New York. Uh, Neil Armstrong descending down that ladder and his fa- infamous uh, speech at the bottom of the ladder. And there are so many stories that that preceded the the mission to the moon. You've got, you know, uh, the different Mercury shots that led up to the Gemini, and then without Gemini, there would have never been the the Apollo because of the Gemini's ability to uh, to learn how to dock and do s- different maneuvers in space. But I, I'm sure that there were other tests prior to the. Um, the the Apollo that actually landed on the moon. And I know you want to talk about Apollo 8 in this interview, so tell us why. Well, first of all, uh, uh, back in the uh, 90s when I was beginning my career as a science writer and mm-hmm. space historian, I realized that uh, um, the Apollo 8 mission had largely been forgotten in the ensuing 30 years, and yet of the, all the Apollo missions, it actually had the greatest cultural impact and possibly the most historical importance, much more than the Apollo 11 landing. And if you talk to astronauts from that time, you will find that out. And I decided to write a book about it. So I wrote this book, Genesis, Story of Apollo 8. It's been out for 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's still in print. We just released an audio version. It's for, it's, um, Frank Borman, the commander of that mission, just told me the other day, it's the best book by far of any of the books about the, that particular mission. And my goal in writing it was to try to make people rec- remember or know what I saw when I was a teenager. Um, th- that was the very first time human beings left the orbit of the Earth and traveled to another world. There will never be another first time when human beings travel to another world. That begins the true exploration of the solar system to the human race, and that alone makes it a significant mission. I wrote about that, that, that mission for other reasons. It was, it was, it's most well known generally by the public by the Earthrise picture that Bill Anders took during that mission. It was the first time human beings, with their own eyes, saw the Earth rise over another planet. And generally, you only can see that at the moon, but this is the first time humans actually saw it. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the astronauts, Bill Anders, took a picture of it in color. And that's been called one of the most significant pictures in the 20th century. It was one of the icons of the environmental movement. And um, I tell stories about that image because uh, Bill Anders took it with the horizon on the right, with the Earth moving uh, from right to left, coming out from behind the moon. But we on Earth always look at it with the horizon on the bottom. And that represents, I think, the difference between a uh, earthbound person and a spacefarer, who Bill Anders thought he was. And so that's one of the significant aspects of, the, of that mission. That mission also had, had, took place at the end of 1968, 
which is absolute, which is one of the most significant historical years of of American history. Many things changed that year. It was a difficult year. It began with the Tet Offensive in Vietnam and essentially the American defeat in Vietnam by that uh, offensive by the North Vietnamese. And it continued with political assassinations, both Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, with riots in cities all across the country, with protests against the Vietnam War on almost a daily basis. You had the Democratic National Convention that year with riots and protests, with protesters throwing Molotov cocktails at police and police beating up uh, protesters. It was an ugly time. You had the Soviet Union invading Czechoslovakia and ending the Prague Spring. It had been a very, very difficult year. And then at the end of the year, Apollo 8 occurred with this amazing triumph going to the moon. And they did it the week of Christmas in 1968. And that in itself is a significant aspect of the story and why I wanted to write about this, because they did a telecast Christmas Eve, 1968, and uh, before the mission, the press guy in, in, at NASA, Julian Shea, calls up Frank Borman, the commander, and tells him, look, that telecast, Christmas Eve at prime time, is probably going to be the most watched telecast in the history of the human race. You'll probably have a billion people watching you. It really behooves you to think of something to say. Now, Frank Borman was a test pilot. He, he immediately t- said to Julian Shea, the press guy, who was a writer, uh, I'm a test pilot. I do, rock, I do, you know, planes and engineering. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Can you give me some suggestions? And this tells us something about the time period in the '60s. Julian Shear, the press guy of NASA, says to Borman, "No, in no, very bluntly, it is not my place to put words in your mouth. Think of something." Whoa. So the astronauts had to figure out themselves what to say. And there's a long story. I'm not going to go into it here. I I really wanted to know why did they choose to do what they did? Because what they chose to do was read the first 12 verses of the Old Testament, Genesis, as they orbited the moon, looking down at that bleak, skull-like surface. What inspired them to do that? And how? who thought of it? So I researched that and found out why. So that was another reason, because they were trying to make a statement in that reading um, about the American vision of uh, life, Um, because they were not praying when they did it. They chose to read from the Old Testament because the Bible is actually a document that covers three of the most important religions in the world, and a a large majority probably, or at least a, Mm -hmm. a, a large percentage of the population. Well, they were trying to embrace everybody with as much goodwill as possible. And that's one of the reasons they chose it. And finally, one of the reasons they chose that, and I wanted to write about this mission, because not only was it historically significant, but the risk involved is something that we have forgotten. Um, prior to the mission, Frank Borman's wife, Susan Borman, was very, very worried. She really thought he was going to die in lunar orbit. And so Frank, who was going to go, he had committed to it, but he wanted something to reassure his wife. He asked Christopher Kraft, who was in charge of Johnson, the Man Flight Center at the time, to, to go over and talk to Susan to try to ease her mind. They were friends. They all lived in Houston in, in the same communities. And so Chris Kraft comes to her. They sit down, have coffee. They chat for a while. And Chris Kraft, to reassure Susan Borman, says to her, look, we've looked over all the numbers. We really think they've got a 50-50 chance of coming home. <laughs> That's what he was reassuring them. 
So these guys went. Their families approved of them going, even though Stephen Zimmerman is just one example. Was sure she, he would die. Um, uh, they went, and they went to not only win the space race, but to do, as Kennedy said, to prove that a free people can do it better, and to demonstrate that to the world that freedom and American uh, concepts of individual uh, personal responsibility and individuality are the way to make things happen. Well, so that's why I wrote it. And uh, uh, it's a mission that should not be forgotten. And I think future spacefarers, colonists on other worlds, mm -hmm. will always look back at that mission as an important moment in history for them, a very important moment in history for them. And Americans should look at it as an important uh, landmark because the words the astronauts said from orbit, looking at the Earth, their impressions of the Earth, the only place of color and a place of home and safety in a very hostile universe, in many ways affected the United States in, 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 in ways that we did not expect. How so? And so it's an important issue. Well, I'll do one thing. Um, it, uh, I think for my generation, the 60s generation, the baby boom generation, um, those images of the moon actually acted to discourage many people from wanting to do space exploration for many decades. It's one of the reasons we have not gone anywhere since then. Um, uh, they, they so focused on the beauty of the Earth that they forgot uh, that they forgot that part of a, a human endeavor is to expand outward. You, either you expand or you die. And so our generation, my generation, has not accomplished very much, and I think that was part of the impact. Um, as as Bill Anders said, they went to go to to find the moon, and they discovered the Earth instead. And that and part of the reason they saw the Earth as delicate and and something to be protected, which is where the environmental movement comes, is they were flying in a very delicate craft. It's nothing like the kind of things we build today. And so, you know, that fragility that I think they projected onto the Earth and the rest of the universe, and that's and that impacted us on Earth and changed our culture significantly. And I felt it. I very much felt it when I was a kid. I, the, the enthusiasm for space exploration, I kind of felt... Uh, disappeared after that mission. Strangely enough, even though we wanted to still make the landing, and we did the landing, and I'll tell you once again, that was the period on the explanation point, because every astronaut and mission that followed merely repeated many of the things that happened on Apollo 8. I, I understand that, but without Apollo 8, if that had been a failure, the manned mission would have been scrubbed. Yes, and you know, I haven't even gotten into the technical yeah. reasons and the historical reasons of why Apollo 8 went to the moon when it did. One thing to mention, one of the reasons the odds were so bad, were considered so low, is that they were going to the moon without the lunar orbiter, which was supposed to act as a lifeboat backup. Yeah. And it did that exactly on Apollo 13. And Jim Lovell was on both missions. He would have died in about an hour on Apollo 8 if, the, if they had had the same problem because there was no lunar module on Apollo 8. But they went to the moon anyway because that was the only way they could see getting to the moon by the end of the decade. Stand by, Robert. You and I have to take our break at the bottom of the hour for the news. Exonation Bob Zimmerman is our special guest this hour. His website is BehindTheBlack.com. We're talking about Apollo 8, its significance, its importance, and... I agree with, with Bob, it should not have been forgotten. It played a very pivotal, important part in America, getting to the moon for mankind. We'll be back on the other side of this break. This is the Exxon, I am Rob McConnell, don't go away.
Explanation. We're talking to Bob Zimmerman uh, this hour. His website is BehindTheBlack.com. We're talking about Apollo 8. Now, the mission objective of Apollo 8, uh, let me see, for Apollo 8 included a coordinated performance of the crew, the command and service module, or CSM, and support facilities. The mission also was to uh, demonstrate translunar injection, CSM navigation, communications, and mid-course corrections. Uh, let me see. Consumable assets and the passive thermal control of the detailed test objectives were to refine the systems and procedures relating to future lunar operations. All uh, you know, you know, Rob, I've always been amazed how NASA can make something that is really exciting sound completely uh, incomprehensible and boring. <laughs> I must say that as you're reading that, what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you wish, I can now translate to what those things mean and what Apollo 8 was sure. doing and accomplishing. Um, the Apollo program had a set series of scheduled ideas. I write about this at great length in Genesis. Mm -hmm. um, their idea was they would do an Apollo mission that would last about two weeks to demonstrate the capsule and the crews could work that long, and they would do it in Earth orbit um, and work long enough to operate long enough to do a lunar mission. That was the Apollo 7 mission. They were then going to follow it with a mission which would be in Earth orbit, but just, just test the lunar module in Earth orbit, do maneuvers, docking with it, just to see if it worked and they could dock with it. And that was what Apollo 8 was supposed to do. And then they were going to follow that up with an Apollo mission with the lunar module that would go into very high uh, orbit and then return with the capsule, uh, duplicating the rates of speed, the return speeds that an Apollo capsule would, would have coming back from the moon to test mm -hmm. those technologies and also to test the lunar module again in higher orbit. Then they would do a mission to the moon with the lunar module and test it in lunar orbit. And then they'd finally do a lunar landing. And one of the rules of this system was they would not leave Earth orbit without that lunar module. As I mentioned in the previous segment, right. they considered that to be a backup of redundancy. And, of course, in Apollo 13, it was demonstrated to do exactly what it was supposed to do because they had a, a serious failure in the service module. It provided the capsule its oxygen. And it happened on the way to the moon. So they had to spend several days depending on the supplies on the lunar module to get back to Earth. Okay, now what happened in the summer of 1968, the man in charge of this portion of the program, a man by the name of George Lowe, was recognizing the fact, he sat down in vacation on a beach and was thinking about the reality that Grumman, which was making the lunar module, was not going to get it done in time for the Apollo 8 mission. And so there they're sitting with Apollo 7, it's going to launch in the fall, it's going to do its two weeks in Earth orbit, and then they have Apollo 8 and they have nothing really for it to do because it won't have a lunar module. And they could do another mission for two weeks in Earth orbit, but I will tell you that the commander of uh, Apollo 8, Frank Borman, and his navigator, Jim Lovell, had spent already two weeks together on a Gemini mission to demonstrate that you can keep, stay alive in space for two weeks. And the Gemini mission was, in, was kind of interesting, as, as Jim Lovell described it to me. Um, imagine that you, two people get into a, uh, a kind of like a slightly larger than a VW Beetle. You close the windows, you turn the engine on, you turn the wheel in completely in one direction and then tie it down so you can only go around in circles. And you're stuck sitting next to the other person in that position for the next two weeks. 
And that's what it was on Gemini 7. And so neither Frank Borman or Jim Lovell were really interested in going around the Earth again for another two weeks. It doesn't they didn't like each other, but that didn't seem really very appealing to them. So they themselves said, we've got to think of something else to do. And so George, Lodges, George Lowe is sitting on the beach, lying on the beach, sunning himself, thinking about this. And he finally says, well, you know, we know the lunar module, but could we just fly a mission to the moon to test the engine that they're going to use, that's the SPS engine, that they're going to use to put themselves into lunar orbit and then to get out of lunar orbit. Can they test the uh, computer calculations about the route, how to get there? Can they test the communication systems to make sure the radios work at these long distances so they always can be in contact? Can they, you know, the whole range of engineering, can it work at long distances? Because every mission before had been Earth orbit as pretty much almost, except for a few Apollo missions, every other mission has been in Earth orbit. Going to another planet has different challenges. So he thought about that. He says, well, let me talk to people. The Saturn V rocket had only flown twice before, unmanned, and on the second flight it had serious problems. It had engine problems. It wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. It, had a, 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 it shook a lot, which actually caused some problems as well. And so he called up uh, Warner Van Braun, who was, who was the chief in charge of building that, and asked him, Ken, have you fixed those problems? Could you put people on a Saturn V on its next launch? And Von Braun and his people said, yes, we could. We, we know what the problem is. And once you fix it, you might as well put people on the rocket. And he went down the computer people, he talked to everybody involved, and they all said, let's go for it. Hmm. Now, I should point out that the last person who found out that they were going to go to the moon was the head of NASA, James Webb. This was all down the line in the engineering trenches, figuring out whether this could work. And then when they finally decided they're going to go for it, they call up the head of NASA and tell him this. <laughs> Of course, uh, according to the story, when he was told, you, you almost went deaf with his, uh, his, his voice on the other end of the phone. They didn't do it in person. They did it by phone. Smart. But at the same time, he, he was delegating the authority to the people who really knew what was going on, and he said, okay, let's go for it. And so they decided to take that risk because they also knew one of the factor was that the Soviets were known to be planning both unmanned missions test missions flying around the moon with, an, with the same capsule that they would eventually put people on. And they were, there was a lot of data from the CIA that suggested that in early December they were going to do that mission with two cosmonauts on board. They wouldn't land on the moon, but they'd fly, and they wouldn't go in orbit, but they'd go around the moon. And there was a real fear that they would beat us to do that. And so the decision was made, let's go in December of 1968 uh, to take a chance. And if the, Rus the Russians have any delays, we'll get there first. And that was the reason they went. And so the whole mission was to test all those things that NASA was describing in that, their typical jargon. But it was basically finding out, can we do such a thing? Were there any tense moments on that mission? Uh, yes, uh, without any question. I mean, one of, the, one of the issues is, of course, is will the SPS engine work? Mm -hmm. The SPS engine had to, once they got them in lunar orbit, the only way they could get out of lunar orbit was to fire that engine. And in this case, they had no redundancy. The engine didn't work. They were stuck. That was why Susan Borman think, uh, thought her husband was going to die in lunar orbit, because she just thought, they, they, you know, there's no backup to that. If it doesn't work, he's, he's doomed. Um, so that was one. And they did fire that engine on the backside of the moon, so they're out of touch with Earth. And so when they fired it, the only way we, they couldn't talk to anybody on Earth, and no one on Earth knew what was going to happen. And the only way we found out finally it worked is that reestablished contact with the spacecraft at exactly the right time. At that moment, Jim Lovell said, Houston, uh, let me let you know that there is a Santa Claus. 
because they all knew they were coming home. There were other moments on that mission that were somewhat tense. Uh, uh, on the way home, they had, they had a navigational system that was automatic, but Lovell was, was also trained to do navigation off the stars just in case that system failed. And on the way home, he actually, and they were, gonna t they were not going to touch the automatic system. That was the plan. Why turn it off? Why change anything? You know, Lovell would practice sexton reading of the stars, but they would never turn the automatic system off. And then on the way home, one of the astronauts accidentally turned it off. Uh, that was Lovell, actually, who did that. And so he had to now very quickly use what he had been practicing to get them aligned again. So that they, the spacecraft, when he turned it off, the spacecraft thought it was back on the launch pad. And so it lined itself according to that data. Of course, it's wrong. And so they now have to get this corrected. Now, it's not going to change their course on the way back to Earth, but when they enter Earth's orbit, it has to know the exact angle it's at so it can fire the engines at the right time and orient the ship and get it to come back to Earth in the proper manner. And so, yes, there was about 10, uh, 10 minutes of teeth grinding. Uh, Mormon and Anders sitting there waiting for Lovell to do the navigation to get them in position. And, of course, he did, and they came back to Earth. Um, they had issues. Uh, Borman got a little bit uh, nauseous and sick on the way out. And there was this was the first time humans were beyond Earth orbit, so you're out in a more a higher radiation environment. And there was concerns that that sickness was caused by that. And he said, nap, it was, I took a sleeping pill. Um, I took a sleeping pill and it upset my stomach, and that was probably it. Um, there was problems getting the astronauts to sleep. Surprise, surprise. You know, Borman finally in lunar orbit ordered Lovell and Anders to go to sleep. Ordered them to. He fought, he shut down all operations. Said no more work. You're going to go to sleep now. And Anders didn't want to go to sleep. And Borman said, "You're going to sleep. You're going to sleep right now. Go to sleep." Uh, I don't want. You're going to sleep. It was that kind of conversation. <laughs> if you read the transcripts, and Borman, Lovell eventually dozed off and got the sleep he needed. Borman was concerned because they had kind of made some minor errors. And he was afraid that if they don't get some rest, they're going to make some major errors. And he didn't want that. He was committed to getting them home. Plus, they were the first uh, three humans to ever see the backside of the moon, right? Yes. Uh, you know, we had gotten pictures of the backside mm -hmm. of the moon, but that's not the same thing as people seeing it. And the pictures were in high resolution. They took pictures of high resolution so we could get to see it. But they, they, one of the things they, they, taught, they, they, they settled the mystery of astronomers who had been arguing for decades, are those craters volcanic or impact? And uh, the astronauts, without any question, settled the these humans. Uh, as, Bo as Anders said, it looks like a sand pile my kids have been playing on, pounding things apart. So that settled that question, and they found the far side of the moon to be even more hostile than the near side. All right, please stand by, Bob. We've got to take our final break. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great having you with us. ExoNation, Bob Zimmerman is our special guest. His website is, are you ready? Do you have your pencils and paper ready? Because here we go. Behindtheblack.com. And uh, Bob and I will be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I am Rob McConnell. We'll be right back. Exonation, Bob Zimmerman is our special guest. He is the author of Genesis, the Story of Apollo 8. It's out in print as well as in an audiobook. And his website is behindtheblack.com. First of all, Bob, I want to thank you ever so much for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure talking to you. And uh, thank you so much for sharing this very valuable information with the Exo Nation tonight. It's my pleasure. You know, I'm obsessed with space. That's what I spend my time on behind the black. Uh, uh, 
outlining what mm-hmm. is going on right now in space, which is very different from what was going on in the 60s. Yeah. It's why I write space histories, and so I'm very glad to spend my time obsessing with you and your audience as well. Thank you, sir. Uh, if, if we may, if we could just get away from the Apollo mission and we'll get back to sure. it, I, I'd just like to ask you about uh, President Trump's plan to go ahead and uh, with his plans for Space Force. It's an interesting. That's a very interesting question, and it's a very complicated one. The military itself has been talking about reorganizing its space operations for several years because those operations this involves launching surveillance satellites, reconnaissance satellites, uh, weather satellites. They use, they would do routinely, not anymore. Uh, they would do uh, GPS as a military operation and uh, launching those satellites. And for me- several years, the Air Force has realized it's all spread out within the, um, within the military into different offices, and therefore it's not getting the attention it deserves. So they've been thinking about reorganizing it into a single agency within the Air Force, within the military, and take it out of the Air Force. Well, Trump has come along, and he has suggested instead to make it another branch of the military, like the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, um, the Coast Guard, the uh, and the Marines. Yeah. Make it another branch of the military and call it the Space Force. And, of course, that gets a lot of ridicule. You know, you think of space cadets and, you know, going out with your <laughs> ring decoders and so forth. There is something to be said for it at some time in the future, and there is definitely something to say for doing something like that now, uh, uh, just as the military was thinking to reorganize its space operations so it's more focused and operating better. I mean, I can give you a specific problem the military has had, the way the bureaucracy has functioned there. It has benefited them in the way they're broken up to build bigger and bigger and more expensive gold-plated satellites to do this work. The trouble with that is it takes longer and longer to build them. You have less redundancy, and they become a very easy target in orbit for our enemies. You can really cut out our our capabilities very quickly because there's not a lot of space satellites up there. And the management in, in the Air Force has been trying, and the Pentagon has been trying to get the military to shift gears to, to launch lots of small satellites. That's where the satellite industry is shifting to anyway, to save to, to, to create a redundancy so that an enemy can't take out one satellite and cripple us. One satellite wouldn't mean anything. You might have a thousand up there. And they've had trouble making that switch. So the idea of doing this is a good idea. Whether or not, though, we're gonna, it makes sense to make a whole branch of military right now is very questionable. And what makes me very concerned is that the, air, the military has proposed it's going to cost $13 billion over the next like five years to create this Space Force. And to me, that's an absurd uh, pork number. It's pork. It's boondoggle. Because it's only an office. It's not a military division. It's not men in uniforms on spacecraft with their zap guns fighting enemy agents. It is just an office to issue contracts for uh, a variety of satellites. That's essentially what it is. And then there's other things. You might have the X-37, you know, other kinds of more radical type operations. But nonetheless, $13 billion for this seems to me uh, a boondoggle. It seems to me this is, this is Washington doing its typical thing it's done for the last 20, 30 years, not really getting the job done, but instead focusing on how we can distribute pork into districts to make congressmen happy. And that means they're not really, in the end, even if Trump has the national interest in mind, the bureaucracy here might not, and it hasn't very much in the last 30 years. And so uh, that is my concern about this. 
I hope that answers your question. It does. Uh, it does Oakley. in total. Let me ask you this question. As a space historian and a space buff, do you believe that our planet is being visited by extraterrestrials from other star systems? I have the faintest idea. There's no evidence. There's no clear evidence. There's mm-hmm. no convincing evidence in the slightest. And I'm a facts-based guy. Sure. I like the facts. And I haven't seen anything. Uh, uh, I'm also uh, take the scientist's skeptical view, which means that doesn't mean I dismiss it. It means I'm open to evidence. If some evidence that I find convincing is shown to me, I'll be very excited. But I haven't seen any evidence to, to, to make me excited. Nothing. Everything I have seen has very quickly devolved into, that doesn't convince me in the slightest. That doesn't mean, and I will tell you, just because mm-hmm. I'm not convinced doesn't mean it's not true, but I'm just not convinced. Now, once again, we have to ask the question, is there extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life? And that's a very interesting question because we all assume with the number of planets and galaxies, stars out there and galaxies, and now the number of planets we're finding orbiting stars, that there's got to be other life out there. There's just got to be. But that's a statistical question. And right. the truth of the matter is now we've, been, we've had the ability to listen and look into space now for – in a very sophisticated manner for more than a half century. And we actually have not detected anything that uh, can be identified as an alien species. Nothing, nothing. We've gotten a few hints that very quickly turn out to be natural phenomena. Sure. And so the question then has to be asked, you know, there's going to be a species that will be the first. And it seems really unlikely that we are, I don't deny that, but you can't dismiss that possibility. And so are we other extraterrestrials? I personally think that likely are, but we haven't made contact. Or we haven't seen evidence of them. Um, they likely are, but I don't dismiss the possibility that we might be the, 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 the old ones, the very first ones, the very first life in the, souls, in the universe. It's also possible that were, they were, the universe is so old that mm-hmm. uh, civilizations come and go and they never can make contact with each other. These are a lot of unknowns here. And that was to make it most interesting. You know, it's that black. It's behind the black sure. what's out there. And I can't answer the question, really. Um, don't know. Why is it so important for mankind to go to Mars, a planet that's dead, that has really nothing to offer? Well, you know, Mars actually has a lot to offer for us in the future because it actually has the most potential to make it livable uh, of any planet in the solar system at this, at this stage. Uh, the moon is a great place to learn how to build bases on another world because mm-hmm. it's close. But eventually, Mars is a much better place to build a civilization, a terraform, so forth. And why is that important? Well, this is Elon Musk's vision, and I think it applies. I agree with it in the end. If we as a species wish to survive, we really should be a multiplanetary species, just simply redundancy. We need a, an Apollo capsule, and we need a lunar module, because if something goes wrong on the Earth, we'll be in trouble. And so, and you know, it's not likely something is going to go wrong on the mm-hmm. Earth. You know, people are doomsday-minded oh, in sure. our generation. But I, it, it, the Earth is very robust. I'm not too concerned. But nonetheless, there's no harm in having – there's no harm and there's great good in having living on multiple worlds. And then there's a more fundamental thing to my mind that's philosophical, which is as human beings – we should be pushing ourselves to do great things. It makes us better than we are. What did Robert Browning say? A man's reach yeah. should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for? But, but, why exactly sh- it. but why spend money on going to a planet for the betterment of humanity if we can't take care of the humanity that is here on this planet first? All right. That's an old 60s question. It's the defeatist uh, 60s idea. 
the fundamental thing is the way you want to do this mm-hmm. is you want to do it with private enterprise because in that case, nobody is spending money they don't want to spend. If Elon Musk can get a business going with rockets and spaceships that can take people to Mars and he has customers that want to buy his product, then nobody is spending money they don't wish to spend. One of the reasons in the last 50 years we've had a problem is because we're using tax dollars which are coerced. And you and I might not want to spend our money for that purpose, and that's That's where the question comes from. That's one. Secondly, even if we do spend this money, the money isn't put into a capsule and flown into space. Every dime is spent on Earth. So it's it's a false statement to say. Wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec. But that doesn't help the people who need food, clothing, housing. How? Yes, it does. How? I I think this is the industry you create. In it it produces work for people. It enlivens the society. If you just simply, you you know, what's Mm -hmm. the old uh, Christian statement? Give a person a fish, you give them one meal. Teach them how to fish, and you feed them for life. Right. It's the same kind of thing. Just giving people the money that we didn't spend on space is not going to accomplish anything. But instead, having a robust private enterprise industry that is competitive. It's not a space program. I hate that word because mm-hmm. it's not a program says it's like a Soviet Union. I want a space industry that's chaotic, that's competitive, that has many people following their dreams and coming up with ideas that make them money that – other people can now buy the product to fill their dreams, to go to space as a tourist, to, to, to build things in space, you know, all kinds of things. Have that chaos. And what do you have? You have a thriving, prosperous society. I've just described, by the way, the United States, which went from tiny, poor colonies in 1700s mm-hmm. to the wealthiest nation in the world in only 200 years. Right. We did it by freedom and, and competition and private enterprise. Robert, the time has come where you and I must say so long. I do want to thank you ever so much for joining us. And Dexo Nation, if you would like to get a copy of Robert Zimmerman's latest book, it is entitled Genesis, the Story of Apollo 8. And once again, Robert's website is www.behindtheblack.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at com on all social media sites, exxon Radio TV. And on Simul TV, we're Channel 21. That's the Exxon TV channel. And for all the programming on the Exxon Broadcast Network, visit www.xzbn.net. I'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Messaging data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. 
texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun. And everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just $1. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232. 32 32.